There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Off The Beaten Track Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. Today's episode is Frank Turner. Uh, got to sit down and have a, a right good chat with Frank and you're going to absolutely love this episode. Um, we pinball all over the place with conversation um, alongside the obvious chats about the records that have been really key to to Frank's life. Um, before we get on with the podcast, just like to say a big thanks to Scroobius Pip and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. Um, big thanks to uh, 76 for producing this podcast. And if it's your first time listening to this... Um, Please go and have a rummage in the archives because you'll find stacks and stacks of podcasts from like some of your favourite musicians, actors, uh, DJs, comedians. Go and have a rummage. You will find something that you like, trust me. Um, and if you really like this and you also want to support it, there's a Patreon page as well where I put standalone episodes up each week uh, over there. I think there's about 100 and 50 odd episodes over there to get your teeth into as well you can find out all about that um uh com. um shall we get down to uh today's episode i can stop this uh this introduction chit chat now and get on with the good stuff please enjoy off the beaten track podcast with the wonderful frank turner i've got an announcement save our souls clothing www.sosclothing.com uk. Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in South End on Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. In addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, They've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. 
What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15. B-E-A-T-1-5. And that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk Official sponsors of Off The Beaten Track Podcast. Let's get back to that podcast. It's Off The Beaten Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. It me, stew with it. Welcome to Off The Beaten Track Podcast and sitting opposite me today via the means of a Zoom call is Frank Turner. Hello. Hello. Hi, how are you doing? I'm all right, thank you, Frank. Um, really appreciate you giving up your time today to come and talk records. My pleasure. I like talking about records. It was hardly a massive ask. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, before we get on with the, the playlist, I just want to ask you um, something aside from, from uh, the tracks that we're going to talk about. And I just wondered... Mm. Um, how you found the whole um, weird world we're living in at the moment in, you know, in lockdown. <laughs> how, how you found it as, as, as Frank Turner, the human being, and, and Frank Turner, the creative? Um, yeah, I mean, well, the, I guess the first thing I would say is that it's not a single monolithic experience, you know. I think a lot of people talk about, like, lockdowns, if it's just one thing that you'd have one set of feelings about, sure. and that's not been the case for me. Um, the beginning of lockdown was... The very beginning was very weird and, and quite rough because I was in the middle of a tour and we had to cancel and come home and that sort of goes against my instincts, shall we say, um, and, and obviously is both professionally and financially quite tough as well. Um, so there's that. Then, you know, you had, there was a sort of bit, a bit of a honeymoon period I found where, um, you know, it was like, well, there's time with no distractions, we're all in this together, and both of those things turned out not to be true in my opinion partly because there is a distraction, which is a global pandemic. Um, and secondly, because, you know, we're not all experiencing the same thing. I think that people have very different experiences of lockdown, depending on, you know, where they live, their socioeconomic status, whatever it might be, um, you know, and, and considering issues like sort of I don't know, everything from domestic violence to people who are in recovery or whatever it might be, people who live with no outdoor space, people isolating alone, there's lots of different experiences. So within that, despite those bits of it that I've found hard, I've been trying quite hard not to complain simply because I like where I live and I live with my wife and my cat and we all like each other, uh, the cat, most of the time. Um, do you know what I mean? And so I think it's important to be kind of self-aware, if you know what I mean. Totally. Um, that's that's all quite highfalutin. Um, I, and then I've just been trying to keep busy, really, and, and, and have routine and structure. Um, I'm, I, I thrive off having a bit of structure in my life and there was none at the beginning, which led to quite a long period of time of kind of drinking and netflix um and after a while you're kind of like this isn't really like a model for life for an extended period of time um but i've been writing songs i built a guitar um i have been learning how to mix audio it's been it's been fun oh wonderful wonderful well frank let's get on with the playlist and i'm going to ask you for Mm. track one to tell me the song that you think has the greatest ever intro uh, I'm sorry, I'm just looking up what my actual answers to this I wrote down were. Uh, the song, oh, right, yeah, so the song 
the song that has the greatest intro. I mean, there there are many, but um, I went for the for what for me is the easy choice, which is "Bat Out of Hell" by Meatloaf. Okay. Um, uh, partly because it's just got one of the longest intros ever. Um, uh, do you know what I mean? It just keeps introing for such a very very long time, uh, and and it's all gravy in my opinion. So um, you know, uh, it, if you're going for an intro, you might as well sort of max out your. Uh, <laughs> your possibilities. I mean, what I would say, so um, Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell is my go-to karaoke song. Okay. Um, you know, if someone, if somebody uh, forces me into that situation. I like um, the fact that you that just one. said forces, and yet should they force you, you're then on stage for about 12 minutes. Well, well, except, so here's the story. I, I, there, the, as any Meatloaf fan will tell you, there are two versions of Bat Out of right. Hell. There's the nine-minute version and there's the five-minute version. Right. And, of course, those of us who care about Meatloaf only accept the nine-minute version. <laughs> Why, don't, don't edit Meatloaf. Jesus. Um, so, uh, and I once got thrown out of a bar. I was in New York and i just finished recording an album and I was out celebrating with some friends and, and we got very drunk. Um, and... Um, uh, I end up on stage singing Meatloaf as karaoke, and the first five minutes went by, and that was fine. And then, and then the edit came in, and I was outraged uh, that they'd <laughs> gone for the edited version. And so, started expressing my outrage into the microphone uh, using certain swear words that are less cool in America than they are in the UK. Should okay. we say uh, this is the PG version of this story? Um, and and was thrown bodily out of the karaoke bar for doing this. Um, but I felt like I stood up for something I believed in there. Um, and uh, you know, and I did. The other thing about th- that song for karaoke is that because there is a long intro, you've got plenty of time to you know have your last drink yeah. and kind of you know limber up and whatever else you need to do before you get started. So is that Frank Turner's most diva moment ever? Losing his shit because <laughs> they put the edit of Meatloaf on when you were doing karaoke. Okay. I, 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 I like to think I'm not very deverish, um, uh, but you know, there comes a time in every person's life when they have to draw a line. Yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to ask you about um, intros with, with, with your music, Frank, mm. and and from going way back to um, you know the, the, the early days of, of doing stuff with Lee Joke a Million Dead through to, to what you're doing mm. now. Uh, over that time, we, we've seen the way that people listen to music change dramatically. Sure. Um, has that impacted on your approach to songwriting and specifically the intro in regards to trying to hook people quickly? Um, I, I, I know what you mean. There's the whole Don't Bore Us Gets the Chorus thing. And I read an article not too long ago that was sort of like doing a graph essentially of the amount of time between start of song and start of chorus over time. And it definitely goes down. And, you know, I guess the thinking is that we live in a, an age of extremely low attention spans. And if you want to blow people away on the radio or Spotify, whatever it is, you've got to get to the chorus. I mean, that putting it that way makes me uh, uncomfortable. Do you know what I mean? Because I think that's quite unartistic, should we say. I do think um, them things are leaning more towards a pop market. Sure. Uh, definitely, I mean, there are definitely people who will try and kind of um, spread that gospel through all areas of the music industry. Sure. I will say that. Um, uh, but I guess the, the, the sort of the other way of thinking about it, which I have thought about quite a lot, is that like, so one of my um, one of my songwriting kind of uh, guiding lights is um, my favourite song uh, by Black Flag is called Fix Me, and the whole song is forty eight seconds long. 
Um, and I don't really have any songs that are that short, but I do every time I write a song and it passes the 48-second minute mark, I think to myself, I'm dawdling. Uh, do you know what I mean? It's like, um, I'm, We've hit you the know. minute mark. This is this ain't good. Yeah, it's like, do you know what I mean? Cause, and I, and I, guess, I guess my point is that um, one of the things that I feel that punk rock as a musical style brought to the world of music was was the at least of refocusing the idea that brevity matters and and like succinctness is is powerful it's it's not completely original to that because i mean one of the things i find interesting if you go back and listen to the early beatles records a lot of them are two minutes long you know um and they were very very short and to the point as songwriters um which i think is really powerful and i, and I in a way i spend more time thinking about the first three or four beatles records for that record for that reason um because i think that you know being succinct is can be powerful in popular music um so you know i I do think about this kind of thing the the punk rock thing is interesting to me it's like you can tell artists who came up before punk so the reason that springsteen thinks that doing a four-hour show is a good idea is because he came up before punk was a thing i love springsteen but i really don't want to see him play for four hours like jesus christ i'm not sure i want to see anyone play for four hours (laughs) I'm, i'm a busy man um so you know the um Anyway, so, I mean, there, yeah, I do think about that, and there's definitely been... Um, I used to have a habit in my songwriting of writing songs on my early records that took quite a while to get going, because I was doing this thing often, which was sort of layering, you know, you start with the vocal and guitar, and then you bring a bit of piano, and then you bring the drums in, and then you bring this in, and bring that in. And and they were kind of... Their 0 to 60 speed, if you like, was quite slow. Um, and I thought about that a lot on more recent records, and was interested in songs that kind of hit the ground running a bit more. Not necessarily because that's inherently better, but just because I've done quite a lot of the other versions. Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, and that's the thing that you quite, you quite often you notice live, when you're playing a song live, do you know what I mean? It's fine having one song with an extended intro, but if you're trying to bang songs together to get momentum going during a set if every song then goes back to zero and then takes its while you know so i I have thought about that but i mean you know it's i i I, i'm resistant to the idea that i'm doing that because that will help me in the world of spotify should we say even though i guess it might not hurt me in the world of spotify but nevertheless that's not my kind of primary motivation yeah well answered frank (laughs) thank you two uh the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you? Um, so I, I've slightly cheated in my answer to this. I picked um, the song Wrathchild by Iron Maiden. The real answer to this question is Ides of March by Iron Maiden, which is the introductory song on the album Killers. Uh, but it's, a, it's about a minute long and it's an instrumental piece. Um, and it's just a kind of... It's a um, concerto, essentially, for the album. And, th- and then you land with Wrathchild. Um, so, but uh, essentially, I wasn't that interested in music, particularly for the first 10 years of my life. Um, my parents were into sort of classical music, church music, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, pop radio at that period of time didn't do very much for me. Uh, and then um, I stumbled across the music I made, and um, I was playing Games Workshop because I'm a massive winner um, with a friend of mine and his older brother had a, uh, his bedroom door was slightly open and he had a Iron Maiden poster on the wall and I thought it was something to do with Games Workshop it looked like it was in that kind of territory and I said to my friend oh that's cool uh, and he said yeah that's a band and I said get out of here <laughs> there's no bands that are cool enough to have like <laughs> zombies on their posters or whatever uh, and and he said no it's a band um so i told my dad and my dad um this is this dates the story incidentally there was an, there used to be an r price at waterloo station imagine that um and he went in and bought the only maiden record they have in cassette there for me and it, which was one of the only sort of like 
<laughs> sort of considerate gestures my father have made in my direction, and which he still to this day regards as being his central parenting error in life because I got that cassette, <laughs> I put it on, and it was like a light switch. It just, there was life before and life after. Um, and, you know, as time goes by, Rothschild happens to be a song about absent fatherhood in its way, which, you know, um, get your psychoanalysis notebook out there but nevertheless it's just it was the sound it was just the impact the rage the the energy the it was just cool it was just amazing and i was i'd never heard music that cool before and that was when my life just went off a damn different track forever okay so what would the emotion have been frank i think i think it, the emotion was mainly just kind of like giddiness do you know what i mean i just nothing had ever like landed with me emotionally or um sonically like that before you know to me before that i think music was something that my old sister listened to or you know jason and kylie or whatever uh, you know or or um i had the tiger on a car advert or something like that and none of which did very much for me and it, it was just kind of really really powerful i think one of the other things and a lot of people who are into more underground types of music will be familiar with this was that it was mine do you know what I mean? I yeah. found it. Like, none of my friends knew about this. Um, like, I checked. Do you know what I mean? I was sort of calling my friends, going, have you heard, like, metal? And people were just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and, 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 and it was just, you know, that sense of ownership is really important as well. But it just, it felt like I'd sort of, yeah, joined a secret brotherhood somehow, or community, let's say. Um, uh, and, and it was one that was really kind of theoretical for a long time because my parents wouldn't let me go to gigs. I didn't know anyone else listened to the music and it was very much sort of my little sort of private thing. In fact, there was one of the more kind of, the second kind of light switch moment in my musical listening uh, career, if you like, was when, um, so I got into Maiden, I got all their records on cassette and, and was like so into it. And then I, I was chatting with a distant cousin of mine at Christmas who'd sort of got wind of the fact I was into this. And he was like, there are other bands that sound like this. And I was like, no, how could that be? <laughs> um, and he he made me a cassette that had... Um, Judas Priest Painkiller on one side and ACDC Thunderstruck on the other side. And it was, again, it was, I mean, it was like the whole thing all over again. It was like, Jesus Christ. Um, and then I discovered, you know, Kerrang! magazine or whatever. And it was like, again, it's a whole world opening up. Um, so, yeah, it was just the the biggest change in my life to date and, and remains that. What, what do you think it was about metal that just resonated with you? Um, energy, I think. Do you know what I mean? It just, it was, it was just exciting. You know, um, and it was fast. It was definitely faster than any music I'd ever heard before. Um, and, you know, the vocals are just like there and they're just like, you know, um, uh, now I spend my time going all around. And it was just like, wow, people can sing like this. And it was just, you know, um, for me, a lot of my taste in music is quite physical um, in the sense that, like, what I love about um, punk rock and hardcore and metal and all that kind of thing is is the kind of, it makes me feel very physical, very involved very energetic and all the rest of it but even like the way that i sing i'm often told by sound guys for somebody who's in the sort of more acoustic folk world to the extent that i am i sing incredibly loudly um and that's because i learned to sing in hardcore bands do you know what i mean so for but but that's it for me singing is about pushing it all out do you know what i mean it's just like and and like it's not it's not about kind of whispering like nick drake into a microphone it's about like purging almost do you know what i mean and 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 i sort of got a sense of that from that music track three the song reminds you of your time at school 
so, right. So, um, I was shipped off to a boarding school when I was um, 12 years old. Uh, well, 12, 13. I, I took a scholarship exam because my parents um, wanted me to be the kind of person who went to one of those schools or they, they wanted to be the kind of people who had a son who went to one of those schools i, I in all honesty don't really I, I my memory is that i wasn't entirely clear what was going on i just got told to take this exam and went okay um and then passed which cool um and then uh i sort of remember kind of arriving for the boarding part of it and going okay uh, and then my parents kind of left and i was like when, when are they coming back and they were like, oh, in, you know, two or three months' time. And I was like, what the fuck? Um, and so it was, it was a very um, discombobulating experience. And then there's the whole social side of it. I went to Eton College and I, I really didn't like the people I went to school with or indeed the political culture around that. Although that's a slightly anachronistic word in the sense that when I was 12, 13 years old, I'm not sure that I quite grasped the politics of it. It just didn't feel like a good shout to me. Um, and I came from a different place to most of the kids who were there. Um, and I sort of hated it um, immediately. I was very unhappy. Um, and uh, that was just around the time um, that I'd started listening to punk rock. Um, I'd, uh, I was really into Nirvana and Kurt Cobain referred to Nirvana as a punk band quite a lot. And I went, okay. Um, and a friend of mine's uncle told me to buy uh, The Clash and The Sex Pistols. So I bought those and I thought they were cool. And then, you know, as you do in that kind of, in the Green Day and Offspring was starting to become a thing. So I was kind of moving into that world. And then around the time that I got sent to that school, I discovered, you know, Black Flag. And it was like, and, and it sort of became a bit of a life raft in a way. There couldn't have been know? many people listening to Black Flag at Eton. <laughs> there were none, essentially. Well, no, that's not a strict truth. There were two, there were two of us. There was me and my mate Chris, um, yeah. who and we were best friends through school because we were having a similar experience. Neither of us were pleased to be there, shall we say. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, initially, like a lot of people, I guess it was the kind of the snotty rejectionist, you know, no effects or whatever as well, and Descendants, um, Black Flag. Um, and, I mean, I listened to a lot of stuff. I listened to a lot of Discharge and GBH and stuff like that as well. Um, the song that I've picked for this um, is a song by a band called Propagandi, who are a Canadian punk band who I came across probably when I was about 14 or 15, at a guess through one of the Epitaph or Fat Records samplers would have been where yeah. I first heard them. But what I loved and indeed still love about Propagandi is they have a kind of literacy and intelligence to their lyrics, which is just orders of magnitude. It's just miles away from the rest of the punk world and indeed pretty much all other music that I'm familiar with. Yeah. Um, the first Propagandi song I ever heard opens with the line, publicly subsidised, privately profitable, the anthem of the puppeteer, puppeteer untouchable. And it was just like... Oh, sorry excuse me <laughs> like what um and and you know and it was just and because of course at the same time i had started reading anarchist books i'd started reading you know everything and howard zinn and, and chomsky and all the rest of it and it was just it was that kind of stuff kind of set to music and it was just hugely powerful to me on that level so i got hard hard into punk rock and anarchism at that point in time but the song that i picked for this uh is a song called i was a preteen mccarthyist and uh, it's a propaganda song um, from their first record, How to Clean Everything. But um, 
Oh, no, possibly from their second record. Hold on, I can't quite remember. Doesn't really matter. Um, uh, but um, the the thing that I loved about it is that there's this moment at the end of the song where he suddenly kind of goes into more emotional and less intellectual territory for a second, and he says, maybe you're a lot like me, identified for 14 years and out of choice and terrified on the morning that you woke up to realise that when you jump ship, you either swim for shore or you drown, so don't let the fuckers drag you down. And it was just like in the midst of this kind of like anger and... Um, you know, intellectual engagement and all this kind of thing, trying to deal with the situation I was in, it was like somebody just reached out and went, and also your heart. Do you know what I mean? And it was just like, it, it makes me tear up even talking about it. And that song will always be just gigantically important to me on that level. Was she, was she playing at that point? Have you got a guitar or? Mm, I had a guitar and... <clears throat> um, uh, me and my friend Chris, who I mentioned earlier, we sort of put a little band together, um, which uh, went through various iterations and terrible band names, and indeed a scar phase. If I'm honest with Come you, on, reel some uh, names off. Give me some names. Uh, well, the wor- the wor- <laughs> oh god, the worst one. I now I've got to tell this story because if I don't explain it, it's going to sound ridiculous. <laughs> There's a band called Goldfinger, Skullpunk band called yep. Goldfinger, and they have a song of theirs where they kind of name all the great punk bands. He's like, you know, the Sex Pistols, the Clash, the Damned, and then he goes, blah, 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 and says one that's kind of hard to understand what he says. And I now know as an adult that he says bad religion, right. but in a slightly comedy Spanish accent for some reason. But we thought he said Badger Doritos, so we called ourselves Badger Doritos. <laughs> Loving that. <laughs> but the idea being that we were already cited in a song about great brilliance and therefore you know we'd sort of like jump the queue as it were we were fucking awful as well um i was i was i stumbled across some of the recordings the other day which will never see the light of day if, as long as i fucking live um uh but yeah you know um but yeah so we we were playing for pretty, from a pretty early age yeah so what did you want to what did you want obviously I've, you know I, I like to ask guests like if they enjoyed school um, and it, it sounded like you know from what you said it, it wasn't the greatest experience um, um, I mean I guess the one thing I say about that is that like I'm, I was intelligent enough at the time and now to recognise that one of the philosophical issues with those places is that the education they provide is fucking amazing do you know what I mean that's, that's kind of why it's a problem in a way is that it's like it's restricted to moneyed access which it shouldn't be um, but nevertheless having gone through it and, and, and indeed you know uh, my parents didn't pay for me to go there that's the point of the scholarship thing but like you know I, I was very well educated and I'm very grateful for that in its way the, the issue is more to do with the, the sort of broader social ass- access to that sure. you know um, but uh, so you know, I, I did enjoy the the academic side of it. I just hated the social side of it because, um, I mean, I guess for a long time I would have I would have answered I would have right now I would have said the sentence everyone I went to school with was a cunt. Um, and <laughs> if you'll excuse the language, and I'm again I'm sort of old enough now to recognise that's not really true in the sense that there were lots of people who had, it was different individuals. I mean, there were definitely some people who had some really unpleasant takes on the world. But then a lot of them are raised by unpleasant parents. So, I mean, what are you going to do? But, yeah, the experience... I mean, the the thing that happened for me during school was that um, about halfway through, whilst getting into all this punk, I discovered the London hardcore scene, as in there were people putting on underground punk shows and hardcore shows in London. And I could get there and I could go there and it was all access though and the thing that i loved about it and that will always be my favorite thing about punk rock was that you became a member of the scene by showing up and that was it 
You didn't have to be cool. You didn't have to be in the know or good looking or anything like that. If you showed up and you were into it, you were part of the scene and that was it. So um, from when I was about 16 onwards, I just went to London all the time. I stopped going home for school holidays and stuff um, and started bunking off and just spent as much time as I could um, on the London punk scene. What did you want to be when you was at school? Um, <laughs> a punk. Um, I mean, <clears throat> yeah, I, I guess I guess what I wanted to be was was kind of what I am now. I mean, I've, I've been very fortunate in my life to have kind of a quite a clear sense of direction from a pretty early age. I mean, obviously that's evolved over time. When I was 10, I wanted to be an Iron Maiden and be in this kind of stadium metal band. Um, and then when I was about sort of between about 16 and 20, I probably wanted to be in like a super anarcho hardcore crust band who never played venues with stages and <laughs> do you know what I mean um I, I wanted to be in catharsis or whatever um and then you know it's kind of evolved over time as my music and my understanding of the world and all the rest of it has changed as well but there's definitely it, it's been a pretty consistent ambition well you, you mentioned um the, the, the education at school was good and you said you know not, not so much the social side of things but what about the creative side of things was that encouraged at all at school um, uh, th- there was a band practice room that me and my friends kind of monopolized because no one else was really interested in it. Uh, and I've got to give them credit for that. You know, there was a drum kit and some amps in there, which we could use, but we weren't encouraged. I wouldn't have said to do that. Sure. Um, there was a lot of, I mean, you know, again, one of the things about it is that, um, you know, when they get speakers for their school societies, they get like insanely high profile people or whatever. Um, which is cool, but again, why are those kids getting it and not any other kids, you know? Um, uh, but, um, I mean, I wouldn't say that we were encouraged to do it, to do the kind of music that we were trying to do. Yeah. You know, Nijo was kind of like pretty aggressive music. And I, we'd certainly got told off for screaming um, in, the, in the rehearsal room quite a lot um <laughs> well there you go it makes you a punk that right there you're a punk yeah yeah right totally. well the punkest thing i ever did at school so oh christ i can't believe i'm about to tell this story um they had they had morning assembly every morning at like i guess like 8 30 or whatever in the in a school hall and they'd have um you know so a speaker or someone would play some music or whatever and we and i can't really remember if you were asked to do this or if we had volunteered to do this but we decided we were going to do one of those and play a grindcore set, which we did. Um, and, like, my mate Chris, who was on guitar, like, wore a dress, you know, and I wore, like, eyeliner. Um, and I had, I think I had, like, poser written on my chest in black lipstick and all this kind of thing. And it, it, proper, like, <laughs> yeah. grindcore kind of stuff for, like, ten minutes in front of the whole school. And, like, everybody kind of laughed, screamed through stuff at us, hated us, which was the point, do you yeah. know what I mean? We were trying to, like, <clears throat> assault people sonically, I guess would be the way of saying it. And, like, we were pretty kind of untouchable, not in a good way, yeah. do you know what I mean, after, after, after that event. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, I, I look back on it and kind of can't quite believe we did that, but we did. Brilliant. <clears throat> what was the first record you remember buying from a record shop, Frank? <laughs> um, well... <clears throat> this this is a strange one because like um first of all it it depends how militant you're being about the word record there oh no it, <laughs> you know it, I mean? it, it, it can be obviously cd or cassette yeah 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 so um i mean i i i have put I, the choice that i've i've made for this is uh quarter light sneeze by tori amos and what i'm putting down here is definitely um cassette singles in the cardboard sleeve you oh, know what i'm talking about just push them out 
Yeah, I yeah. know. And they, and they, you know, two songs. Yeah. And, you, and you'd have to turn them over and all the rest of it and rewind them. It was so great on. for the B-sides, that, because you had to listen to the B-sides oh, yeah. so you could turn it over and listen to the A-side on the other exactly. side. And there was, and like, there was some great, great B-sides back then. Um, uh, but yeah, I, 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 to, I was, my older sister gave me three bands that I, that I was into kind of as I was getting into Maiden. They were the kind of like the tempering to that part of my music taste. And that was Levelers, Count Crows and Tori Amos. Um, and particularly Court Light Sneeze because it was dumb. It's a, it's actually produced by Trent Reznor, that track. Um, and so I, I remember, that. yeah, he did, he did all the beats and production on that song. And I kind of, I remember that sort of being kind of like validation or like permission. Do you know what I mean? Because I was already starting to identify as like a metalhead. Yeah. I quite liked Tori Amos. But it was like, oh, Trent Reznor's on this song. I'm allowed that one. Yeah. Um, so I can't swear to you that it was the first record I bought, but um, it, it, it feels like it. Something around there. I mean, certainly it was one of the first things I bought that wasn't an Iron Maiden cassette. Yeah. Hello. I've interrupted the podcast again, haven't I? Sorry. It won't take a sec. All I want to say is, the songs that we're talking about in this podcast, if we can't play them, it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such. So if you want to hear the songs, just go over to Spotify and search Off The Beat and Track Podcast and you can listen to all the songs because I've put playlists up for each of these. If you can't find it on there... I'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode. So you've just got to press that one button and you can go through. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks. Anyway, I'll shut up, get back to the podcast. See you on the other side. How was it, you know, the, you know, the, those early days of, of discovering music? And, and like you say, you mentioned the levelers there. How was that to sort of fast forward however many years and, and record uh, with the levelers? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, insane. And like my, my adult life has featured quite a lot of like, fucking hell moments <laughs> like that you know um touring with the levs um I've, i'm reasonably good friends with adam jurich from cat and crows now um, really and yeah he's a, he's a 
Yeah, I, I know. And like, um, and, and like, it's funny. Every time he texts me, I still kind of go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> when my phone pings. Do you know what I mean? And the thing that's funny is, so um, when I got the tour with the Levelers in 2008, it was the first time I met those guys. And my sister texted me, my older sister texted me and was just like, fuck you, I was into the Levelers first. You're not allowed to be their friend kind of thing. But we sort of made our peace with that and I introduced her to him and all the rest of it. And then a couple of years later, I met Adam for the first time. I was in Australia at a festival and I took a photo with me and him and I texted it to my sister and I knew it was like four in the morning in the UK. So I texted it to my sister, then called her and she was like, hello? And I went, check your phone and hung up. Um, and she then looked at the picture and then she texted me back being like, we're, we're dead. We're, we're over. You and me, is, this is done. Do you know what I mean? She was furious. But like, you know, I, I've I've been fortunate enough to meet a lot of um, musicians that I had posters of on my wall when I was a kid, you know, and that's a, a really cool thing. We was um, we, we, we was talking a little while ago. I know you're, uh, we've got a mutual friend in Scroobius, Pip. And, um, oh, yeah. And uh, and Pip and I were discussing uh, Counting Crows as, as as it was like the ultimate breakup album of the uh, the early nineties, uh, August and mm-hmm. everything after. But, oh yeah, but it's the on the live album. I'm just nerding out on Counting Crows a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, that's for, for, for um, up, Let's go. <laughs> it, raining in Baltimore on the live album where he just wigs out with his voice. Ah, oh, where he just sings how much he needs a raincoat. Oh, yeah, like fucking hell. Yeah, it's amazing. And well, talk, talking about B signs, I was talking about earlier, a huge influence on my whole career has been the fact that on the early Cat and Crow singles, the B sides would be reworkings of album tracks done in a different arrangement and a different style. So there'd be like a rock version of a folk song or a folk version of a rock song, or whatever. And that was the B sides on those cassette singles. And it was a really early introduction to me to the idea that arrangement and songwriting are two slightly different things. And you can take a song and you can do a heavy version or a quiet version or a fast version or a slow version. And it's still the same song, but you know you've done a different thing with it, and that that's the thing I got off Cat and Crows, and the thing I do all the time. You know, is like work up different versions of my own songs. Um, so that was a big thing. The other thing I was going to mention, by the way, and I'm now I am now um, showing off for the next little for the next thirty seconds. Go I'm for it. Off. We we played a show in Baltimore a couple of years ago, and uh, it was an outdoor show. Well, kind of in a sort of pavilion, like under a sort of circus top type thing, but it was raining. Um, and halfway through the set, I was I had a little solo break where my band went off, and I was like, I can't not do this. Oh, so I, you so, can't not do that. <laughs> yeah, it's like it is quite literally raining <laughs> in Baltimore. So, so but this story gets better because so I played raining in Baltimore, and the crowd was into it, and all the rest of it. And I came off stage, picked up my phone, Adam Duritz. Right, and it turns out Adam Duritz's brother was in the audience. Fuck off! And, That's and, amazing. And had, and had called Adam, <laughs> and Adam had heard some of it, and he sent me a text saying, "Nice work on the cover." And uh, you know, I did a little backflip or whatever. It was it was amazing. What a moment! That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. That was pretty cool. All right, Frank. Let's do uh, track five, which is the song that soundtracked your years clubbing. Okay. Well, so um. <sighs> Clubbing's an interesting word for me. When I when I was a young kid, you know, um, I'm guessing that we're roughly in a similar age bracket here. I don't. Oh, mean way to... older than you, Frank. Okay, well there we go. <laughs> so you'll you'll remember that when we were younger, there was definitely more tribalism among youth people when it came to music. Right. Incidentally, a word that I'm really keen to revive is grebo. 
I don't know if you ever used the word right. Grebo when you were a kid. Let me, let me just tell you this. I, I've run a, an alternative nightclub for, for 30 years, Frank. Yeah. Um, and when I first started going there, as, as a clubber, before I got involved in it, in DJing there, mm. um, all the bands I would go and see would be the Senseless Things, the Levelers, Carter, mm. the Wonder Stuff. Yeah. Grebo bands. Yeah. That's what we called them, Grebo bands. It was, yeah. It was the, it, we all had that look. It was like dreads, shorts, you know, baggy tees, long sleeve, like band T-shirts. They, that's what we called Grebos in Essex anyway. Right. Well, I mean, I guess in, in, my, in my day, Grebo just essentially meant anyone who wasn't into like pop and dance music okay. and clubbing. So, so, you know, a lot of dreads. Basically, it meant someone who'd go to Reading Festival, not Glastonbury sure. Festival kind yeah. of thing. Do you know what I mean? And, 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 and it was, you know, and instantly, this is a major thing for me. Is I've explained this to younger people or indeed Americans a lot. The reason why the Prodigy was so important is that they were the unifying thing for alternative music in 100%. the broadest sense. They, and it was the first time the Metal Kids and punk kids and clubbers ended up in the same place and realized they had something in common and it was so powerful i remember that vividly from like the late 90s when i was a kid it was the first time i sort of allowed myself to listen to a band that had a drum machine you know but then so this goes back to when i was a kid so we talk about clubbing like when i was a teenager clubbing to me was like the enemy do you know what i mean like techno anything kind of dance all that kind of thing it was like fuck that i'm gonna go and see like bands that sound like crass do you know what i mean and it was like the idea of knowing how to dance was kind of like bad in some way so that wasn't really a thing in my early 20s um mid 20s i spent a lot of time um sort of living at a bar called nambuka in north london that and the guys there ran a club night called frog that was the biggest indie club night in london so it was Dave Danger and Sensible J and all the rest, um, and they ran this. And I, I wasn't technically employed, but I was definitely part of the kind of the inner circle, as it were. Um, I mean, I remember that I would go down every week and I'd help put up, uh, you know, backdrops and flyers and stuff. And quite often my job during the night would be, um, how best to put this in a way that's legal, um, running certain <laughs> things from the dressing room to the DJ booth as required. and Bottles of water, you know, right? I'm, yeah, yeah bottles of, exactly. Bottles of water, exactly that. Um, but so, you know, that was my clubbing world. Um, and it still, it was, it was indie clubbing. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It wasn't yeah. quite... Um, this, this comes up a lot, Frank, because so many musicians and, and, and DJs and stuff like that I'll speak to are mm. like, yeah, I didn't really do that kind of shiny chromey kind of high street clubbing we just went to the dirty sure. sweaty indie nights and yeah, yeah. So. i mean i think looking back I, I obviously was a bit too young and into a different type of music to have anything to do with like the free party scene for example in the 80s and the 90s but like there's a part of me that sort of wishes that i could have done it in the sense that that type of dance music and of electronic music it seems really anarchic and really punk to me in a way that i quite like even if the music isn't 100 percent to my taste i think do you know what I mean? That whole kind of approach is really exciting. Are to you me. talking about and like it, the Whirly Gig and Osric Temple? Yeah, the, the, and, the, the, and the, the raves and the free parties, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. and the whole kind of calling an answering machine and driving yeah. with the motorway. Oh, whatever. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but even kind of talking about, I've, I've read about like, you know, um, early Ministry of Sound history and that kind of thing. And it's it's interesting to me. It seemed, it sounds like it was an exciting moment musically. Mm. Um, anyway, I'm going off topic. So, 
indie clubbing was my thing. Um, and, you know, I never really danced. I'd take quite a lot of kind of dance-related substances <laughs> and then just sort of do massages and talk a lot of bollocks in the dressing room. But um, the one song that landed with me that I've picked for this is a song called The Rat by The Walkman. It was a kind of, you know, indie club land hit, as it were, in, in the mid-2000s. But it came out just at the moment that Million Dead broke up and I went solo and I was feeling quite kind of burned uh by that experience um and i'd sort of made a decision to sort of leave hardcore behind as a musical uh style for the time being at any rate um and you know i'd found this new group of friends that were centered around nambuka and centered around frog and that was all very important to me but i definitely felt quite sort of like chewed up and spat out in a way do you know what yeah. i mean um and then i heard that song you know you've got a nerve to be asking a favor and and that line where it says when i used to go out i would know everyone that i saw now i go out alone if i go out at all and i remember it just like just fucking landing yeah. in my soul and being like that's my life um and 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 indeed it is one of the most beautiful pieces of guitar music that i know it's so powerful and the euphoric. drums frank the drums oh. are off the fucking scale <laughs> it's got to be it's got to be exhausting you watch and the like, video oh, of him he's just <laughs> losing it it's like yeah. it's incredible <laughs> it's such a great great tune and it's still it very, that's, a, that's a song that puts me in a very specific time and place yeah. and that specific time and place is kind of coming up in the middle of the dance floor at the LA2 do you know what I mean so there you go <laughs> <laughs> oh wonderful um, for track six Frank I'm going to ask you what your favourite song from an artist from your home county is uh, so, um, uh, okay. well, you see, I've slightly cheated here because I'm not sure it's quite home county. Okay. Um, but, um, you know, I grew up in Hampshire, um, and then I got shipped to boarding school and then I moved to London and like, I've essentially been quite nomadic since quite a young age. Um, and one of the things I put out a record in 2011 called Ingen Keep My Bones that was a kind of looking at national identity, um, Boringly, I still have to say this, it's not a nationalist statement. I don't think anyone's better by virtue of being born anywhere. That's a ridiculous idea to me. But the thing was, like, um, I was touring so much. I did my first tour when I was 16 and, I, and basically haven't really stopped until coronavirus. Um, but, like, uh, you know, I was touring so much and then it was just like... Um, a lot of the, particularly around that time, I'd start touring America and I'd tour it on my own. So I'd be the only English person in a crowded room every night, night after night after night after night. And it just sort of makes you wonder why it is you understand the rules of cricket and other people don't, or whatever, you know. And and it's not because I think that's better. It's just it's made me think about England and Englishness and how that has affected me for better and sure. indeed for worse. Um, so I was thinking about this a lot. And, and at that time, I started getting into folk music. Um, uh, I'd used the word folk from the start of my solo career, but it was much more kind of ideological and aspirational than it was musicological, shall we say, yeah. other than the fact I had an acoustic guitar. Sure. Um, but, you know, and then I sort of found out, oh, there is actually such a thing as, like, real English folk music, and there's a whole scene and people who know about it and all the rest of it. And and um, some of that scene's quite worthy. It's quite kind of museum custodian, do you know what I mean, in a way that doesn't do masses for me. But some of it is really wonderful and beautiful. Um, so I picked a, a song by Martin Simpson called Never Any Good, and... Um, uh, it's just, it was a song that I heard quite uh, um, early in my journey into folk music that just feels, in, in a really nice way, feels very English, you know, and it, you were never any good with money, you couldn't even hold a job, not hard enough for, not hard enough for the obvious, 
not steady enough for the office, not hard enough for the hod. Do you know what I mean? It's just this kind of really beautiful portrait of his dad. Um, and uh, it's, it moves me deeply. And it's, and it's got a very trad English sort of uh, finger-picking pattern and all the rest of it. But it's a, just a wonderful song. Well, we put together a, a Spotify playlist, Frank, to accompany this podcast. So mm. um, I'll ensure that that's on there. Um, I, I had a listen as well um, in the week. And it's, uh, it's a beautiful record, that. Yeah, it's just it's uh, there's something. Uh, this is another. I mean, this isn't really quite related to what we're talking about, but something that I I really love about a lot of kind of folk music that I'm interested in as a writer at this point in my life. An awful lot of popular music, including quite a lot of punk rock, is almost exclusively about experiences and emotions that you have between the ages of 16 and 25. And I understand why, because things can be quite powerful then. But it's like. I think there's something slightly dishonest about and I'm not going to name names but there's I've heard songs by big punk bands about high school and it's like you're all in your 40s why are you talking about high school it's got fuck all to do with your life and yeah. first of all let people who are in that age group have those songs but yeah. also the reason I love Loud on Wainwright or The National or Leonard Cohen or The Hold Steady or whatever is that it's people who sing about adult experience you know because i certainly wouldn't have called myself a fully formed adult at 25 jesus christ um you know and that's one of the things i love about this song is it's like it's just a it's kind of a grown-up sentiment to explore in a song kind of it's about regarding your father as a real person rather than a, a sort of icon in a way and it's yeah i find that powerful okay last track frank a song that mm. many may not know that you would like them to hear um, I mean, uh, I've, so I picked a song by Sister Rosetta Tharp called Didn't It Rain. Um, my uh, knowledge of Sister Rosetta Tharp is comparatively recent. Um, I'm something of a music nerd. Um, on bookshelves you can see in the corner of this shot are endless, endless music biographies, music history books. I'm the kind of person that I'll read a music biography about a band I don't even like because I'm just interested. Do you know Likewise. what I mean? Um, yeah, you know, it's just it's the history. If somebody sold a million records, then I'm interested in how they did yeah, that. Totally. You know, uh, and, and if they've had that impact on culture. So, um, uh, but yeah, I was reading a lot of books about, I mean, I'm, I'm very obsessed with Elvis. There he is. Um, uh, and, I've, you know, Charlie for those that are listening, like he's not uh, in the room with Frank. Uh, Frank just showed us his uh, tattoo of Elvis. <laughs> I, do, I do have quite a lot large cardboard cutout of Elvis in my house but he's upstairs um, uh, life size I should say uh, I don't know if you know he was the king of rock and roll ah right and, okay yeah 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 um, and he really was and people who doubt that statement should read Peter Gorell next two volume biography of Elvis because if that doesn't make you a fan let's 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 chat Elvis quickly um, mm. because I'm, I'm a huge Elvis fan um, young Elvis fat Elvis what are you saying uh, different moments. It, I'm not. I'm not saying that he was consistently brilliant. And certainly, his sort of Hollywood era was like really um, a lot of it. Early Elvis, the the really early door stuff is amazing. Hound Dog still sounds punk as fuck to me. Do you know what I mean? It just in both in terms of the production and the playing, it's just so aggressive. Uh, like when you um, said about the Beatles with them two minute songs, that's what Elvis was yeah. doing as well. Right. Uh, well, and the other thing about Elvis, and this goes back to the thing I said earlier about arrangement and songwriting being slightly different things. Elvis didn't write songs. Elvis was the master arranger. And legend has it, he used to get sent 200 acetates of songs to record, and he would listen to all 200, and he'd pick a hundred, number 198, despite the fact his manager and various other people had been front-loading the ones that they thought he should do on the top of the pile. 
ignored all of that. And if you want to hear why Elvis is important, listen to the two versions of Hound Dog that are out there. With all due respect to Big Mama Thornton, Elvis's version is the one that changed the world, and there's a reason for that, and you can hear it in real time. You know, um, uh, so and and then and the '68 comic special is amazing. Early Vegas Elvis is was brilliant. Vegas Elvis has been kind of like um, coloured by the fact that by the end it was kind of terrible. Yeah. Um, but at the beginning of early, there are bootlegs out there. Early Vegas Elvis was unbelievable. Huge. Absolutely brilliant. Like, and, and, yeah, and, and, first person, first person to ever use an intro tape live. Elvis at Vegas. Really? Yeah. And it was the Thus Spake Zarathustra, you know, the thing that's at the beginning of um, 2001, Space Odyssey. He had that as his walk-on music, and it was the first time a band had ever done that, ever. Nice, nice. Have you seen the and documentary, the Elvis 56? Like, uh, no, I'm not is, sure I have, it's just a, It's all just photographs and, like, mm. and, 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 and voiceover, and it's just him on his first tour. And whoever the photographer is, oh my, I mean, without a shadow of a doubt, the most beautiful man on the planet at that point, without a shadow oh, yeah. of a doubt. Like, Completely. Unbelievable. And Yeah. And, well, and as the old adage goes, you know, he was he was a white truck driver from the deep south who dressed like a gay man and sung like a black man. Yeah, it's just kind of like that's out there. I mean, obviously, Little Richard more out there, and there yeah. is a strong argument to be made that it, musicologically, mm-hmm. Little Richard was more important than all the rest of it, and I'll back that. But there is it, it matters that Elvis had the impact that he did. The reasons why, namely that he was white, we can talk about how that's problematic on some levels, but the simple fact of the matter is is that Elvis fucking annihilated the world. Do you know what I mean? And and that matters. I can't imagine and what he- it must have been like to have just seen him at that point. Them early oh like just them early shows or snippets of him if you know you could get access to a television to see it. It must have been right. Beyond punk, it must have just been right. Well, so one of, well, this is the thing I think about quite a lot. I love Black Flag, as we've already talked about. But one of the things about Black Flag is you have to slightly listen into the context historically, you know, because the production's pretty bad, and you have to remember where music was at that point, and blah 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 blah. You don't have to do that with early Elvis. Like I say, you put on Hound Dog, it's like getting punched straight in the face. Mm. It's, even now, in 2020, yeah. it's like getting punched in the face. It's it's just so strong. And w- what it must have been like to have been living in a world of, of Bing Crosby and Perry Como and how much that doggy in the window, and then have Hound Dog come yeah. on your stereo. It's just like, holy shit. Totally. You know, it's amazing. Well, we, let's move away from Elvis and back yeah, to your choice. We, anyway, we, we can well, sidetrack then. <laughs> The the reason I mention Elvis is this is that um, uh, um, in reading biographies about him and indeed Johnny Cash, uh, the sister Rosetta Tharp gets mentioned quite a lot, and I was like, well, who the fuck is that? I've never heard of this person. Um, and uh, I went off, and and there's recordings exist, and and she, you know, the the whole kind of um, endless chase for like the the sort of godparents of rock and roll, the original rock and roll record, and was it Rocket 88 or whatever, and all this kind of thing is kind of pointless in, to a degree. But she was definitely a forerunner. She and I essentially I ended up writing a song about her, and then making a history podcast about her as well. So I've, I've got quite deep into her career um and you know she was from a um a pentecostal background where they do the speaking in tongues thing and she played a white gibson sg and essentially channeled the whole speaking in tongues thing into the way that she played her guitar um and made a very energetic kind of gospel which essentially started morphing into rock and roll 
Avon Electra. Um, she released a record in 1938 called Rock Me, which is the first recorded use of the word rock uh, to do with music. So, you know, there's something in that. Um, and indeed, it was, it, was a, it was sold like half a million copies. It was a big hit. Um, and uh, she was the first person of any gender or colour to headline a stadium show. Uh, in the 1950s, uh, she she got married. Her second marriage was at a stadium show, um, and uh, she indeed booked the show before she had a husband lined up, which is kind wow. of amazing. Um, she gave herself six months to find a husband after booking the stadium. It's amazing. Uh, but it, you know, and she was she was there. It is possible that she was bisexual. Um, it's sort of difficult to tell, and feels slightly voyeuristic to me to pry too hard into that. But she was essentially. You know, just incredibly iconoclastic. And one of the reasons she's not so well known today, because she essentially gets written out of the script once Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis and Carl Perkins and people arrive. There's a number of reasons for that. Some of them have to do with race. Um, but it's also just, she was just so iconoclastic. She just didn't fit. By the 1950s, she was a middle-aged gay black woman with a gospel background who was still quite religious. Uh, you know, when you're talking about Elvis selling records to teenagers and bobby socks and all that kind of thing, it's just like, yeah. what the fuck? From just from a marketing point of view. But nevertheless, her music was hugely powerful. And um, Didn't It Rain is just a great example of that. And indeed, there's this wonderful piece of footage, which is um, in the 1960s, when young kind of English nerds started... F- getting into American blues. So they got people like Muddy Waters over for a tour and there was this huge... And English and Dutch people started getting kind of uh, black Mississippi American musicians who'd been completely forgotten and ignored in America. They started getting them over for tours in in their later years. And Sister Rosetta Tharp did a tour of England in the mid-1960s where she played on abandoned train platforms because it was shortly after the beaching cuts. So um, there's this... And it's on YouTube, one of them. It's just outside Manchester and it's... uh, there's a railway platform and the audience is on one side and she's on the other and she just plays and she's fucking amazing uh, and you can see it's all these like 17 year old super dorky English kids white kids with notepads and then she's up there rocking out with her SG and it's just beautiful um, and it was filmed for a TV special and that is on YouTube so aside from that if people want to um, check out the podcast where, where can I find that? Mm. Um, so I, I did this record called No Man's Land, which is a history record. And, um, you know, it's, it's all about historical figures and um, female historical figures. And to, to write somebody's life with justice in three and a half minutes is a challenge. It's obviously the challenge I set myself, but I thought I would do a podcast to go deep into the history behind these people as a mark of respect. Do you know what I mean? Um, and indeed to get real historians involved as well who actually know what they're talking about. Um, uh, so it's the, the podcast called Tales from No Man's Land and it's on places that people can listen to podcasts. Okay. Well, we'll, uh, we'll add this to the bio when we put this up as well so people can go and Thank check you. that out. Um, Frank, it, it appears there's light at the end of the tunnel somewhere in this, this pandemic we, we, we're going through. Um, when we come out of this and, and things are safe, what's, what's lined up for you, mate? Well, I mean, one of the difficult things, as I'm sure you know, is that like the easing of lockdown is not a universal thing. And my industry, the live music industry, is not having its lockdown eased currently. There's a lot of people having conversations about things like drive-in shows and all that kind of thing. And I... I appreciate and sympathize with and indeed applaud the impulse to do that at the same time i think that a lot of all of this stuff lockdown and these ideas highlight the fact that gathering is the center of the live experience we want to be you and i both we want to be in a sweaty punk club bouncing 
to the senseless things or whatever. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> totally. That's what we want, <clears throat> you know, and we want to have beer spilled on us and for someone to crowd surf over us, yeah. all of which feels a bit not cool during a pandemic. Yeah. So um, so I don't know when that kind of thing is going to return to normal, but um, I'm enjoying the fact that we can go outside a bit more. Um, and I went to see my mum the other day and it was good. It was a positive thing in my life. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy that we're kind of, seems like things are starting to ease up a bit i mean whether or not there'll be second waves or this kind of thing obviously that impacts live industry as well how are you going to book a tour if you don't know if it can happen but i mean uh i rest assured that i will play shows as soon as i humanly can wonderful i look forward to that as well frank thank you so much for today (laughs) It's been lots and lots of fun. I've I've told stories that I've not told before in any public format, and I'm now wondering whether I should have done so. <laughs> well, I've got it now. It's going out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's all good. Publish and be damned. Publish and be damned. Thanks loads, Frank. Cheers, man. There you go. Cool. Frank Turner. What an absolute gent. Had so much fun doing that. And, uh, oh, man, the uh, the Cantling Crow story, like, that's a moment, right? Um I hope you've all enjoyed that as much as um, I did uh, recording that with Frank. Um, yeah, one of, one of my absolute faves that was, and uh, and a real pleasure to also sit down with someone who's, you know, whose who's work I've admired for for years and years. And um, yeah, so I hope you got uh, as much joy out of it as as uh, as I did. Um, also, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, if um, this is your first time listening, then go and have a look in the archives because you'll see stacks of. Um, podcasts from people that you uh, that you like and I'm sure you're going to want to hear them talk about their records that have been really important in their lives um, alright I'm done um, have a lovely week, um, stay safe and uh, and I'll see you soon, thanks again bye bye oh yeah, sorry I've butted in yet again I just want to quickly tell you about this magazine, it's called Pod Bible now Pod Bible is the new essential guide to podcasts it's put together alongside Spotify and Acast and it's a one-stop shop to tell you all about the podcasts you maybe know about, but definitely about a load of the podcasts that you probably don't know about that we think you should know about. I mean, in the first edition, there's interviews with Adam Buxton, interviews with Craig Parkinson, and there's features on Jade Adams and there's just an abundance of of information about so many exciting podcasts that are out there. Also, Spotify have given us these amazing little codes. So if you do get a print copy, you can just turn on your Spotify on your phone, scan the little code, and it just automatically opens up the podcast on your listening device. How good's that? If you haven't managed to get a print copy, then just go over to www.podbiblemag.com and read it online because the digital version is all over there and it's all free so every other month there'll be a new edition out so go and have a look and support us on the social medias as well podbiblemag.com it's off the beat and track podcast on the distraction pieces network with me stew with him 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.